Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. I want to continue to look under the hood of social cognition. What we find there is that it works not electrically, pneumatically, mechanically, nor neurally, but symbolically. We create a kind of symbolic world in the space of shared intentionality within any culturally defined community, then place ourselves and normalize our behavior within that space. This sounds a bit obscure, but we are all familiar with the various kinds of symbolic structures within that space. Language is the most basic component. We've looked at moral communities, ritual, and roles so far, and even the aspect of devotion. Today I want to talk about myth and the sacred. Aside from language, most of these structures sound religious in nature, but they are all very much part of our secular world as well. So it's unclear to me why this religious attribution is there. Humans are evolved as a species to participate in constructing, then living, in the symbolic world. However, the logic of our participation, that is, how this all works, is obscure to us. This is the way evolutionary adaptations work. We see ourselves following certain urges, and these urges seem to be mostly, if not always, evolutionary adaptations that have some logical function in terms of evolutionary fitness, or did in our ancestral environment. But we experience only the urges, not the logic. Here's an example. Just the other day, I came across a video in the cute animal genre, I guess, on YouTube, posted by someone who took in a rescue beaver as a pet. I wondered how that worked out, so I clicked on it. The beaver seems to have free run of the house and has the irksome habit of picking a doorway and then dragging loose objects from around the house and creating a dam in the doorway. I'm sure the beaver has no idea why he does this, what the logic is. It is certainly not manifest outside of the aquatic environment. He just has the impulse and acts on it. It's how he needs to order his world physically. Humans likewise follow the urge to order our worlds as well, but symbolically and as a cooperative effort. We need to coalesce into groups to learn and occupy scripted roles and hierarchies of authority to conform to social norms, and to expect others to conform to them. We also have faculties for detecting and dealing with freeloaders and cheats and have quite emotion-laden responses when we detect them. We gossip 
and we waste half a day to correct the injustice of a $5 overcharge and rage the whole time. But we don't know why. There is a logic that evolution encoded into our behavior, but we don't know the logic. We're just driven by emotional urges. The way we order the world symbolically is to a degree determined through the urges and faculties we have, which are directly encoded genetically. But beyond that, there are details filled out in a particular culture in ways that are specific to particular groups. The local culture itself is a set of adaptations within a local environment and subject to something like evolutionary fitness and evolutionary pressures, but evolves very quickly in a matter of years or nowadays months as just the way we do things around here. Whereas genetic adaptations in response to a changing environment require many generations. Among the genetically coded universals found in all groups are ritual communication, which we discussed in detail last week, but not particular rituals, which are culturally determined, like shaking hands rather than bowing. Performance of individual scripted roles, which we also looked at, but not particular roles, like receptionist. Status, which we also looked at, but not the basis for status, like education, bravery in battle, or number of clicks. A capacity for language, even a suitably physically evoked vocal tract and cognitive apparatus, but not the particular language, like English or Japanese. I want to bring up a couple of additional symbolic structures that are found universally but manifest themselves differently in different cultures, myth and the sacred. Like ritual, we tend immediately to think, oh, that's religion. So the examples I'll give show that these are equally al al alive and secular show that these are equally alive in the secular world. The amazing thing about our symbolic cultural worlds are that we get to make things up, really, just out of thin air. Not only that, but the things we make up often become more real to us than the things we can actually touch. Let me give two examples. Football and money. Physically, some grown men might run up and down an open field kicking around and throwing a ball. This is odd, but otherwise uninteresting in itself. But this is not all we see. We see an overlay of goals and scores and behavior that follows strict rules that only exists symbolically in the space of communally shared intentionality. What happens physically counts as something entirely different, and that is vivid for us, and it affects individual behavior in the bleachers as well as among the team players. Money used to be similar. Certain metals pressed or molded into certain shapes counted as having exchange value that all agreed on 
and we started trading these coins for goods. Most money doesn't even work that way now. What counts as money is simply bits of information in a computer somewhere, and new money can literally be made up by someone authorized to do so, sitting at a keyboard and punching some keys. We pretend money exists, then through accounting keep track of its pretend movements, and our whole economic behavior depends on this scheme. Isn't this amazing that we can just make things up like this? Here's a simpler example. Umbutu elders go into the forest to have council meetings. Sometimes they cannot come to an agreement. This is natural. When this happens, the forest is not pleased, and they will continue to negotiate until the forest is pleased. Sounds like balderdash to me. But it's easy to see that the myth here will affect behavior in a useful way. It provides a third-person perspective for what is supposed to be a private meeting from which the elders must seem quite foolish if they cannot agree. This inspires more effort toward a resolution. Do the elders believe that the forest is really eavesdropping? It doesn't really matter. Probably some do and some don't. Do we believe money really exists? We similarly make up private property, human rights, countries, and so on, and then treat these as real. And this influences our behavior. If we can make up money, football, and forests being pleased or displeased, we can also make up God and experience Him as very real. And once God is established, it can have a big and potentially beneficial effect on human behavior. Quite simply, we can create new roles and obligations for ourselves in relationship to God, such as devoting ourselves to serving Him selflessly, which might serve to lift us up out of self-serving mundane motivations. Patriots do the same thing for the nation-state. Of course, God is not part of a Buddhist culture. Instead, we try to deconstruct the self, leaving selfless motivations as our only option, then looking for a place to be of benefit. But we can appreciate the similarity of the practical result of no self and God. In many cultures, a mundane task with a mundane motivational structure is elevated to a selfless enactment simply by framing it so. Indigenous Australians, I think Durkheim talks about this, don't just go hunting, they reenact the sum of their ancestors' hunting expeditions. The captain of a tugboat or you in your car might do something similar all the way back to the 1920s. Warriors throughout the ages have probably reenacted myths they have learned about warriors. The most mundane acts thereby acquire symbolic meaning. We can predict that some degree of tension is likely to arise between the world of myth and the world of science. 
On the one hand, we have scientists trying their darndest to pinpoint and understand what is really true objectively. Then you have these other guys over there simply making things up willy-nilly. You can imagine some annoyed glares across the room. But science itself and scientists exist in the symbolic world and have declared and refined social norms and roles and normalized the human capacity for reason, which is largely an aptitude for excuse-making in the individual's cognition, as a highly constrained part of social cognition. The new atheists and rational free thinkers have taken up their cause against making things up as well, but for some reason they seem to leave football and money alone. Our culture is awash in myths. Popular entertainment, like movies, instruct us in moral principles like there are evil people in the world who inconvenience us in one way or another and violence against evil is justified against them. Don't be a wimp. These affect our behavior. Political discourse and advertising is full of myths that affect voting and purchasing habits. Men don't have to actually believe the shapely blonde leaning against the car comes with it, but they buy it anyway. Most of modern myths are doubtlessly more harmful than beneficial. The question of myth in Buddhism has a simple response. Everything is made up anyway, so what the hell? The Dhammapada begins, All phenomena are led by mind. Insubstantiality or the distrust of all truth claims is essential to the Buddha's teaching. The teaching of non-self is the primary example, but also emptiness and the unreliability of all views. For the Buddha, there is never any certainty that a particular truth claim is actually true, no matter what the evidence. Read my essay, Take Seriously But Loosely, about this. Now, the Buddha's intention was not to reject all views, rituals, myths, or even sacred things, but to take these things as working assumptions as long as they are beneficial. This allows us to retain the flexibility to be or think otherwise as needed, rather than being frozen into one version of reality. So what are sacred things? If something is sacred, it is set apart from normal reality as an absolute or fundamental, unquestioned, inevitable, unapproachable, often considered transcendent, belonging to another world. Sacred things are almost always surrounded by myth and ritual, often only physically approachable through some ritual of deference. The sacred has a special aura. Notice that this description of the sacred doesn't depend on whether what is sacred exists at all or not, in another transcendent reality or not. Only that we experience it in that way in social cognition. 
People need something sacred at the center of their lives to order the world at a fundamental level. Someone wrote, so that we are not paralyzed by never-ceasing relativity. God is perhaps the epitome of the sacred for most people in the world, or at least a God. Probably a close runner-up is the nation-state, as in America, land of the free and home of the brave. For many, the market in the exchange economy is sacred and has almost godlike qualities. It's viewed by many as the ultimate regulator of human affairs. Margaret Thatcher, Prime Minister of Great Britain in the 1980s, famously said, There is no society, there is only the market. Like God, the market in its purest form is omniscient and infallible, since only the individual's purchasing choices are perfectly informed and rational. People are also sacred. Celebrities are probably experienced just this way by many in our culture, certainly Elvis. Our heroes are sacred beings, like Mahatma Gandhi. For many Americans, ground zero, site of 9-11, is a sacred space. Certain principles are sacred for many people. Democracy, human rights, the Bill of Rights, capitalism, communism, fascism. Human reason is regarded as sacred by many, probably since the Greeks. Science, increasingly since the 17th century and and hugely now. Every individual seeks order in the symbolic world seeks a place. Durkheim emphasized that without higher aims, something bigger than us to which we belong, without social obligations and constraints, we feel abandoned and demoralized. He coined the word anomi in French, but we use it in English, for the condition of living without norms. Individualists think just the opposite, that is, it's best not to be tied down so that we can do what we want. Studies seem to confirm that they thereby become miserable, quantifiably, in terms of suicide rates, immune response to disease, lifespan, recovery from illness, depression and anxiety, and social connectedness. Let me say something about where I'm going with all of this. We seem to have three sources of discussion about the same thing. In science, which only recently has acquired the language for an interest in such things, we have the symbolic space of social cognition, radically different in its motivational potential. In Buddhism, we have the distinction between mundane and supramundane experience, and of skillful and unskillful action, and of self and non-self. In theology, the intellectual working out of religious frameworks, we have the transcendent dimension. Next week, I will consider, are we talking about the same thing from three different perspectives?